You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 80 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, this is JR, and a bit of insider baseball for you. Um, this week, we had a round of interviews for the magazine, Starburst magazine, with some of the people involved with the new DVD release, The Doctor's Monsters, which is another collection of uh, Mythmakers interviews and such like from real time, which is coming out from Kosh Publishing. And I put my name forward to do the interviews, which will appear in the next issue of Starburst magazine. But while I was doing it, all of the potential interviewees were people that um, I had wanted to get on the Blue Box podcast. And so I made sure and grabbed interviews for the podcast at the same time. So uh, this week we've got coming up David Banks, followed by Keith Barnfather. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, and uh, it'll be back to whatever it was that we had been planning to do this week, next week instead. But meanwhile, enjoy the interviews. I'm, they're, they're great, and I've really enjoyed doing them. And now I'm with David Banks, who most of you will know played the cyber leader in Doctor Who during the 1980s under John Nathan Turner, and who, of course, is one of the guests on the one of the interviewees on the uh, the Doctor's Monsters collection of Mythmakers interviews. Hello, David. Welcome to the Hello. podcast. Hello, JR. Nice to speak to you. Um, so tell me, uh, well, we should, I should ask you about the Mythmakers, but there's several other interesting things I want to get to as well. The Mythmakers, was it weird sitting down and, and doing an interview of that sort? Because as I recall, that was the point where the Mythmakers interviews would take you out to locations and stuff, rather than sit you down in your living room. Was all of this a little bit odd for you? Well, uh, it, it had to be on location it couldn't be sitting me down in a living room because I was on tour with, uh, you know, that stage spectacular, The Ultimate Adventure. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they called it The Stage Spectacular. Um, and we were going from from city to city. Um, I can't remember if it was before or after I I'd actually played the doctor because John had fallen ill. Yeah. And I was understudying. I had my own doctor and, and rehearsals and all of that and a costume. Um, I can't remember if if that was something that Nick and I talked about in the interview, but it was in Brighton. I do remember that. Oh, right. I think I think it starts off with him throwing a somebody. Sorry, excuse me. It's somebody right. throwing a, a bottle um, into the into the Brighton waters um, as a kind of introduction. So yes, it was very firmly on location. And of course, I, I didn't. I hadn't looked at any of the other mythmakers. So. Um, I didn't know whether this was different or not. It was just very, very interesting, as it always is, to talk to Nick about Doctor Who matters. Was it was was talking about Doctor Who something that you realised was going to happen when you started work on the series? When you know, with Earthshock back in nineteen eighty one. No, 
No, I, I, and in fact, I didn't get into meeting the fans and so on until 85, so that would have been after... Attack uh, of the Cybermen, I well, guess. Yeah. I think I remember having this conversation with, with, um, with Colin about... No, we actually, I talked to Peter, I think, um, about the long, long lead, I think was probably the first big one, wasn't it? Right, yes, that's and, right. And, um, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, I suppose they wouldn't want to talk to anybody who's behind a mask. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, then I, I, I met Colin and he said, you ought to come, you know, come, come there. You're one of the, one of the stars of the show. Well, I said, well, yeah, nobody would know who I am. And then... At something else, I think I was filming a, a documentary or a, something for a post office, and there was an extra on there, um, and this extra came up to me and said, "You're the cyber leader," and this is the first person who'd ever <laughs> recognised wow. me. Wow! <laughs> Unsurprisingly, um, this was somebody called Adrian Rigglesford, who was a, you know, was a classic fan. A notorious fan, I should say, and um, and and he got me into the conventions and uh, and even suggested that uh, or encouraged me to write a, a book about Cybermen, which I was wanting to do because I was I was really just very interested in the whole aspect of um, of the cyber myth, uh, of the production side of it, and also the way that these stories spin out from from Doctor Who, the series of Doctor Who. Yeah. So um, that's. Um, that's just a, an email coming in. Um, <laughs> not offering me a job, I assume. Um, so, so that's how it all all came about. And by the time that uh, Nick and I were talking in in Brighton, um, there was a huge history, really, of almost of nine, eight years of of me being in Doctor Who. Um, that we had a good chunder about. I think. Well, you've just mentioned the book. Was was. Because the book's quite a sort of involved look at the Cybermen and quite sort of creative and inventive in putting together the continuity. Because let's face it, when they'd made these programmes back in the 1960s, they hadn't shown any interest whatsoever in making the story add up. <laughs> Had you been a Doctor Who fan and was this this idea about the Cybermen something that was already in you? Or did that come out of you appearing in the programme? Well, I think it's one of those things that was within me, but I, I had to do the program to discover that. Mm. And um, so I, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Tenth Planet. I remember seeing that as a child. Oh wow! Right, yeah. And and you know, I always keep going back to that as an extraordinary SF view of of what we might become. Uh, these cloth covered. Um, uh, you know, people with who are sustained by our technology, and it's it is an extraordinarily rich image for the kind of life that we are now. We can see we are now heading towards uh, something where we have to be sustained by technology. It's it's that old thing of when the machine stops, hmm. um, we depend on those things that we have created to keep to to, to allow us to survive. Um, yeah, it was it was something that um, you could talk about in great detail, I think, and uncover in a way that I think, and this may be unfair uh, to Terry Nation, but in a way that I, I think you can't really do for the Daleks. And the continuity part of it, yes, um, it was a mismatch, mishmas, no, <laughs> mishmash. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things, anyway. Yeah. Um, previously, now I think. Um, 
with the hindsight of those people who want to tie stories together, as I, as I did, I think that the, the current new series since 2005 has been made anyway by fans. Yeah, yeah. By people who were fans and people who are interested in that continuity. So the Cybermen are, you know, have much more continuity about them in terms of the history and, dare I say it, maybe even what I had written set down in a, in a, a sense of understanding their evolution. Oh, yeah, you, undoubtedly. You ever got in the 80s or the 70s. I think your book was, uh, I won't say responsible, but your book is one of the texts that people go back to when they look at how do you make Doctor Who add up? It was seminal, really, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I love I love being seminal. <laughs> but you do. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, on the one level, it's the everything you wanted to know about Cybermen, but we're afraid to ask. Um, on the other hand, it is a philosophical uh, inquiry. I yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still, you know, I have to say, I'm still on that inquiry, and it, it allowed me to write the novel. Um, and the novel was criticised in some quarters because it it wasn't really like a um, a Doctor Who story, uh, at least it didn't start out like that because it, it had more emphasis on the on the the heroine, as it were, um, yeah. and and on real life, on on what it's going back to that idea of what it's like to meet somebody who who says he travels about the universe in a box, you know, in a police box, and um, well, and again, that that sort of looks forward to how the new series would be, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, but I think, and I think that's because, you know, it's not because I wrote that novel then. It's because the, the people who were interested in Doctor Who at that time, uh, you know, the 80s and the 90s, they were growing up into people who became fantastic writers and producers and journalists and so on. And, um, and, and they could enrich an SF series, television series. Um, in in the way that they have done, I think you know. I think the the, the resurrection of Doctor Who has been marvellous in in the two thousands, and uh, uh, you know, and it's sort of settling into a totally different mode now, um, especially with a, a female Doctor Who at last. <laughs> yeah, when when we were doing it, you know, the, and Peter was going to be leaving, and. And there was a discussion in the cast about, you know, who should, and you know, I, I remember saying, it should be, what about Glenda Jackson? You know, why can't we have a, a, a female doctor? It was sort of considered at the time, but it's taken all this time. When was that? 86? Yeah. 30 years to, to, for it to happen. Amazing. I guess, though, with the break, I guess after it came back that probably wasn't the first thing in people's minds and so maybe that's why it's taken them so long to get around to it anyway i've got to ask you about the stage play a how much fun was the stage play and b the stage play means that you are one of the very few if not really the only person ever to have officially as it were played both the doctor and a leading monster stroke villain how does that feel <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, um, blink and you miss me but, um, in in the history. But uh, you know, as, as as fans keep telling me, uh, yes, I am one of those people. It's true, um, and it's because well, I wasn't playing the Cyberman. I wasn't playing a cyber leader in in that show in the Ultimate Adventure. 
um, I was playing the the baddie in it, Carl. Yeah. And um, and there was a need because John was going to be seventy during that that run. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a need to have uh, an understudy. It was put to me, uh, and I said, "Well, I'll only be an understudy if if I uh, have proper rehearsals, separate rehearsals, I have my own costume, and you know, if John does go off, then we know that we've got somebody that can at least sustain the show." Because, because, you know, yeah, because it would have been crazy for you to get up and try and be the John Pertwee Doctor, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yes, yeah. I wasn't going to put a, a white wig on and a belt jacket. <laughs> it's uh, no, it, it, I hoped to do something different at that time. <clears throat> as now, it's strange again, you know, it's taken another 30 years for us to really face the possibility that we are going to destroy ourselves on Earth through through the way that we live. Um, at that time, you know, uh, Friends of the Earth, I think I was wearing a Friends of the Earth T-shirt as part of the Doctor Who, as part of my Doctor costume. Um, I do uh, think so. I've seen pictures, I'm sure, yeah. And uh, uh, this was a concern, a growing concern then. I wanted my doctor to to be gently, you know, urging, pushing in in the direction of of being aware of what we owe ourselves and what we owe the planet. Anyway, yeah, I I, I got the chance to go on because John got exhausted and and, and for two performances um, he he couldn't do the show and very dramatic because. You know, he started the show on a Saturday afternoon in, in Birmingham, Alexandra Theatre, and then and turned to the audience and, and apologised and said he couldn't go on. Wow. And I was on, yeah. Do you know what? I saw that with John and I saw it with Colin, and it's kind of one of the regrets of my life that I didn't see it with you because... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it was so sweet. <laughs> well, that, well, as a Doctor Who fan as well, I wanted to get the whole collection too. But It's interesting, though, going around, you know, because this question usually comes up when I'm at events and so on. And, mm. and there's usually one or two people in the audience who've actually seen it. And it was a very large theatre, I think something like 3,000 seater or something, and, and two shows. So that would be 6,000 people. Yeah. Um, strangely, Terry Molloy was in the audience in, the, in that afternoon with his little daughter, Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, he came around afterwards. Um, Yeah, you know, this leads me on to another question because having seen you in interview, obviously on the Myth Makers and in other things too, you obviously and the people producing the stage play wouldn't have asked you if they hadn't have thought to be the understudy but you have the presence the voice the charisma to make a doctor but but my question therefore leading on from that is this in the 1960s going back to the subject of the cybermen they were very robotic robotic voices no personality when you came to be the cyber leader in the 1980s and i guess the 1980s was a more expressive time anyway was there a deliberate choice to make the cyber leader a more expressive personality? Or was that just something that sort of accidentally came out? Because your cyber leader, I would say, on a personal level, is far more watchable than those cybermen in the 1960s, in a way. Yeah, watch, it, it caused a great controversy and the controversy continues. I think it's good. It's fantastic, actually, that you should <laughs> have a debate that's going on and people get really uh, uh, you know, passionate 
one side or the other. About yeah, it. yeah. I wouldn't this... say I wouldn't say more watchable. I, uh, I mean, my question to you: Do you want to be my agent? <laughs> um, but but no, I wouldn't say more more watchable in the sense that. Um, you know that there is somebody in that suit who, yeah. uh, you know, that exoskeleton, we should say, who was human once and has huge uh, ambitions, uh, is, 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 a, is a, a, a massive psychopath, basically. Yeah. You don't get that sense with the Tenth Planet uh, ones. The Tenth Planet was the most successful in, in the, in the sense, in where you have a voice being provided, you know, technically a voice being provided by another actor. Yeah. Um, because in that, in 10th planet, you see this awful nightmarish vision of, of a, of a human enclosed in something that allows them to, to survive. And they, and they have no emotion because they, they don't need it. They, they are so far beyond, they think beyond human uh, capacity to damage them that they can simply come and say you know we we will convert you uh, this is um, a life that uh, is better rationally for you to live that's the basic of it um, when we got to Earthshock when I, I started with it the clearly the, the scriptwriter um, who you know was steeped in Doctor Who and um, had done his homework very well he was setting We've got to remember this. He was setting the Cybermen hundreds of years later mm. in their history. And, and as I try and explore in my book, they, there has to be an evolution in the way that these, the mechanical underpinning um, has improved. So that's, you know, that's, that's the, the thinking of it. Also, there's, um, you know, Peter Grimway, the director, wanted a very dramatic end to the first episode. And... Uh, it was kept a complete secret. People didn't know that the Cybermen were going to appear. They thought there was going to be a story about dinosaurs. I think. And, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and therefore, right at the end, you've got to have. You can't have. You can't have at the end of this episode. This is what was argued anyway by by Peter, and I accepted it. Um, you know, somebody coming on saying, um, uh, "Destroy them! Destroy them at once." You know, you, you, you've got to have something which is much more emotionally driven. Yeah, much more and, dramatic, yeah. And my argument in the book and my argument you know, uh, um, for this going against this uh, um, emotionlessness, which people argue should be a characteristic of Simon, is that um, you don't have to be – Emotion is something which, in order to do the things which the Cybermen have found that they have to do, is a kind of, um, it's what propels, it's not emotion, it's a, it's a pseudo-emotion, but it seems like us to emotion. Mm. Well, thank you, David. <laughs> David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm going to have to let you go because I'm sure you've got plenty more of these to do today. But I am also sure that for a lot of our listeners, you are one of the icons of Doctor Who. So thank you for coming on. It's been excellent. <laughs> do you want to take a part? <laughs> thank you, JR. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And now I'm back with 
Keith Barnfather, who I'm guessing perhaps a lot of the listeners will be less likely to have heard of than David Banks. But Keith Barnfather is somebody who I think in many respects is one of the unsung heroes of Doctor Who. Not just during the wilderness years, but the entire thing, for reasons that anybody listening, if you don't know, we're about to go into. Hello, Keith. Welcome to the podcast, and I hope you're not as slightly uh, put out by my introduction. Well, you built me up. God, I'm going to have to try and justify that now. Well, I'm going to try and justify it myself now. You are the man responsible for the Myth Makers series of interviews, as well as many of the independent fictional licensed dramas that came out during the wilderness years. And well, from my own personal perspective, the, the, the side of that that I'm slightly more interested in is probably the myth makers. But at a time before the BBC were doing DVDs and VAM and all this kind of stuff, you were getting stars of Doctor Who on the record. And this is back in the 1980s and 1990s when their memories were probably better than they are now and you know sad to say you got interviews with some people who sadly didn't make it to the days of dvd extras so you've got vital interviews with an awful lot of people that otherwise as a fandom we just wouldn't have on the record where did the idea for all this come from how did you set it up and just what was the experience of getting this thing off the ground like? That's, that's a short question. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I've given you a window <laughs> to talk about the whole sort of start of I it, I guess. I should say yes, shouldn't I, really? No. <laughs> um, well, I mean, very briefly, I've always been a Doctor Who fan. I actually was the person who organised the very first Doctor Who convention in 1987. Um, I and the... the 77. Whole- 77, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you said 87. Oh, no, I made a mistake. There you go. So worried. Hang up the line. Um, <laughs> yes, the first Doctor Who convention was in... I, I did it and I've forgotten. Um, the first Doctor Who convention was in 1977 and, and I and the um, executive of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society um, organised it. Um, so I'd already met a lot of the actors uh, from the programme, including Tom Baker, uh, John Pertwee... Uh, all of the the major cast, and I worked at the BBC at the time. I was I was at the BBC in the uh, in the uh, in the 80s, later on, late 70s, early 80s. So I had a pretty pretty good knowledge of um, the the actors. I knew them; they knew me. Um, I worked for the BBC for about three years, and then I went to Channel Four. Uh, worked in engineering at Channel Four for about three years, and then went up to uh, uh, their basically business development, which was their BBC worldwide. And I learned a lot about uh, rights and right issues when I was working for them. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to be an independent producer. It was what I wanted to do for a living and a vocation. And I've been very lucky to be able to do that ever since. Um, I I set Real Time up in 1984. I always intended that the main income for us would be broadcast television, uh, training films, corporate films, business television. But as a sideline to that, I always had in mind that I would do something that would be um, arranged around Doctor Who, that was was a spin-off from Doctor Who. Um, and the Mythmaker's idea was in some ways pretty obvious. You know, I mean, nobody was doing at that time, nobody was doing any kind of interviews with the, um, the cast and crew. 
uh, in any depth, uh, other than obviously uh, for magazines and books. Nothing was being done visually. Um, and, and just to I cut thought, in, when you yeah. get a, a visual interview with somebody, that's an entirely different experience from reading a print interview as well. So this must have been also part of the thinking, right? Well, I think when you when you sit, I mean, I, I, the only the only obvious thing to say is is that you watch television interviews, Graham Norton, because you want to see the person, you want to see the interaction between them. Yes. Uh, you know, the same is true with MythMakers or any form of uh, interview visually. Um, I obviously was very lucky that Nick Briggs was um, virtually the first person. We did have somebody else do a couple of the early MythMakers, but Nick took over with the third one, um, and Nick for the most part, has done all of them since. And, you know, he is a very, very, very good interviewer. And, and the, the interplay between him and the person he's interviewing visually is equally as important as what they're saying. Um, so to, to go back to why and how, um, when, when I formed Real Time, I, I want to do this series. VHS was now out. It hadn't been out that long. It was a relatively new media um medium yeah and um so we you know we thought right okay well we can produce it at a level that should be good enough um you know there wasn't the, technically the, the the equipment there is these days that we were using something called umatic which was a pretty basic engineered eng electronic news gathering uh format but it was good enough um and we started with michael wisher and john leeson wow and pretty soon you started to make it into a regular thing that was turning over a fair amount of interviewees a year. I mean, your back catalogue now is over 100 interviews, if I'm not mistaken, or must be thereabouts. No, we're about 135 now. Not the 100, one count. Wow, 135. <laughs> That's just myth makers. That isn't the entire range. I mean, there's another 30 or 40 special documentaries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll come to those in a minute. How did it feel then when you started actually amassing enough that it, it, it was obviously going to be an ongoing thing? And it was, it was almost like you were producing your own sort of side-stepping Doctor Who series as it were and did you um, did you find that your audience were picking them all up so you had regular sales um well I never thought that it was like Doctor Who because it, it's an interview series and and I, I specifically was aiming at producing something that was complementary yeah BBC, yeah not something that was in competition I, I I've never wanted to do anything other than in a way, help promote the programme. Um, you know, I've done lots of work with the BBC and for the BBC and supplied material to them in the past. And they've always been very, very helpful to me. I've got nothing but praise for them. Um, but the Mythmakers series, because it, because we, we, we were working, doing other work and we had cash available, I would record one every few months and build the slowly build it up. I, I think I didn't really... Although I knew I was maintaining, I was keeping the rights, I was retaining the rights because obviously Real Time were making the programmes. So I knew that we were keeping the rights to the programme, which is very important because when you build a catalogue, it can be very useful having that, that catalogue owned by your company. I mean, if you look at the way the BBC has exploited its, you know, 60 years or 70 years of programming, um, you can see how it can benefit a company to have that back catalogue. Hmm. And I didn't really start thinking about it in, in terms of um, legacy uh, until we had the tragic death of Ian Martyr, uh, literally a month after we'd shot his Mythmakers. I mean, I'd just got his photographs from him and the signed 
labels we used to do on VHS when I heard that he died. Um, and I, I really can't, I can't tell you how I felt. It, it was almost like losing a member of the family. You know, we'd had a wonderful day on, on location with him. He was an absolutely marvellous man. He was so helpful, um, as is everybody we've ever done, actually. You mm. know, they've, they've always been helpful. Um, and I think it finally struck me then that we were actually doing something that had a, a value beyond perhaps how I had first considered it. Yeah, I, in some ways, it, the Myth Makers works as a kind of Doctor Who confidential to the classic series. But in other ways, like I said, and this is what I was alluding to in the introduction, for people like Ian Martyr, that interview you've got with him is absolutely priceless. And that's one of my most prized possessions, to be perfectly frank, to have, I think it's 45 minutes, something like that, of an interview with Ian Martyr that you'll never find anywhere else. Absolutely priceless. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's there's an extended interview with him at all. Anyway, there's a few TV spots. And obviously, I think there was also a small piece for a PBS station in America. But that was literally only three, four minutes long. Um, as far as I'm aware, this is the only interview with him that exists. Yeah. In, yeah. Terms, of, you know, in terms of talking about his life and career. And, and unfortunately, as time has gone by, you know, more more people have passed away. Um, that we interviewed, that I, I I would never have assumed that that would be the case. I mean, Mary Tam was a very good friend. Um, and although there are interviews with Mary Tam, um, our one is probably, again, one of the few that, that covers her entire career, not just Doctor Who. John Pertwee, I mean, again, he's been interviewed many times, but he's never talked about his career in the way that he did in his Mythmakers. Yes, they're absolutely priceless in that respect. Just talking about, you've just mentioned American TV spots. That was one of the other things, if I'm not mistaken, that you sort of got into the licensing of, wasn't it? Um, well, I, I was aware um, that, um, for example, Patrick Troughton had done a lot of uh, appearances on PBS stations uh, before his death. Um, and because of that, I, I trawled around America to all the stations that I knew he'd appeared on and contacted them and and um, licensed the material that they had um, so that we could produce something like um, Patrick Troughton in America is one that I'm very, very proud of because that has about three interviews with Patrick on it that are totally and utterly unique. Yeah. Um, again, they, they, there is nothing with Patrick um, other than one interview at a Doctor Who Appreciation Society convention, which sound quality wise is okay but the picture is pretty poor we use a bit of that in his tribute uh, but the interviews on pbs in america are excellent quality yeah. uh, terry, nation, terry nation is another one we've got some extensive interviews with um so you know all these are, are valuable and they're in the archive you know they're in our archive so we know that that they will always be safe yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, before we get on to talking about what's happening with the Mythmakers now, which is obviously where this conversation's going, at the same time as you're doing this, we can't go by without talking about things like wartime, downtime, Demos Rising. How did the first one of those come about? And um, I'm assuming this, I'm trying to get my timelines in my head, I think this was after the Mythmakers had started. So, were the mythmakers influential in you be able to being able to get these things together? I'm afraid I don't have my itemized lists of years, <laughs> dates, and everything in front of me. Maybe I should. So everybody, forgive me if I can't be specific. Um, wartime came about because you know, I think 
I think you'll understand that nearly everybody who who has aspirations to be in the business who's a Doctor Who fan wants to make drama. Yeah. Um, you know, that was always one of my goals, not my only goal, because I'm, I love making documentaries, but but it is one thing I wanted to do. And, and I think it came about for a number of reasons. Firstly, I was very disillusioned with the uh, the Colin Baker period in Doctor Who. Not Colin himself. I think you know. I think he's an extremely nice man, a very good actor, um, and I think he could have been he could have been the Doctor I would have liked more if if it had simply been handled a different way. Well, um, I, I can't disagree with you there. <laughs> but it's personal taste, and I, yeah. I I certainly would do nothing but support him in, in in a general sense. But it just didn't work for me. Um, Trial of a Time Lord for me as overall arc, you know, was was pretty atrocious. I mean, that's my opinion. I certainly wouldn't expect everybody to agree with me. I know there are those people who grew up with it who who think it's one of the best periods of Doctor Who. So one would hope that we can all agree to differ. But certainly <laughs> from my point of view, I, I wanted to do something to sort of say, no, that's not what it should be like. It should be like this. Now, that is incredibly arrogant. And I would never think that way there. But I did then. Um and I, I, cutting a very long story short, there have been a few attempts. All I can suggest everybody does if they're interested in this story is get a copy of Downtime. Um, it's a book that was written. He grabs his copy from the wall here by Dylan Reese yes. uh, by a verse. And it's 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 chapter and verse on, on all that I'm talking about and a lot more. And it's a great book. Um, and the listeners of this podcast will have heard Dylan Reese talking about it a few months oh, ago when it? it came out. Yes, they will. Well, he's not a very nice guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's only he's only in it for the money. Not. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think you. There's a guy who does it for love. I tell you. Yes, yes. Well, I don't think you go into that kind of book and that amount of research if you're doing it for the money. Why? Anyway, so yes, um, there were a few other projects who were trying to get off the ground, including a sort of officially licensed BBC Doctor Who spin-off, um, but none of it, none of it happened. And in the end, I, I went right. Okay, if I'm not going to be allowed to do something officially licensed by the BBC, which is Doctor Who. Um, then I will do something that I can do quite legitimately and license that is not BBC copyright. And this so, is where your background, at Channel 4, came into play, isn't it? Um, I think so. I mean, I look at it as being obviously logical and straightforward, but perhaps sometimes I don't appreciate, as perhaps all of us don't at times, how our life leads us to a point. Yeah. And yes, my, my knowledge of copyright, my knowledge of licensing, my knowledge of um, what you can and cannot do and what and what is not right and what is right um, are all relevant. And yeah. I, wrote, I wrote to the BBC and I said, now, as I understand it, this is true. They said, uh, we can't deny it. So I had that in writing. I went to um, the creator of Unit and the creator of um, John Levine's character, Sergeant Benton, Derek Sherwin, and I licensed uh, the character of Benton from Derek Sherwin. Um, and then I, I went to Andy Lane and Helen Sterling, who wrote it. And basically, after finding a location with the help of John Ainsworth, who's well known to a lot of you out there working in Big Finish and in fandom generally, um, and John showed me these photographs of this location um, that was just perfect as a sort of ghost story. And so poor Andy Lane and Helen Sterling were given a brief. You've got to write for this location in this format. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's only half an hour long because we can't afford to do more. Um, and 
I mean, I, I have a great deal of affection for wartime. It would seem that many fans who've got it or know about it do as well. Um, well, I was going to say, yeah. all of these things, I, I said to you up front, I was a lapsed fan during the wilderness years and, and this sort of period. And I slapped you on the wrist, young man. <laughs> but man, I... You're right to be here interviewing me. <laughs> From what I gather, though, the reception for these was mostly very good indeed, because I suspect a lot of people felt like yourself. And by the time you get into the wilderness years, you're actually providing a service for people who are missing their Doctor Who. Well, Wartime came out before Doctor Who yeah. was um, postponed. Um, it, it is, I mean, it did get a, it did get go down very well with fans. I mean, I've never, I've tried never to be pompous and arrogant about things. There are those that might disagree. I mean, I think some people have said in the past, why, why should you do this? Why do you do this? Well, my attitude is if people, people want to see what we do, anything that we do, they have a choice. They can either see it or if they don't want to be bothered, then they don't have to. And if yeah. they don't want to consider it to be related to Doctor Who, they have that choice as well. But if there are people who do like what we do, enjoy what we make, then I will carry on doing it. I, I certainly don't consider it to be some kind of um, uh, major contribution to the history of the world or anything. You know, what we do, we do for, because we love the programme. We want to provide something more for fans if they choose to want to see it. Um, and, you know, 35 years later, obviously, we're doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, in that case, let's skip ahead and we'll start skipping forwards and backwards now. But your latest or one of your latest projects is a sequel to one of those quite early ones. You're back in Devil's End. You've got yeah. a bit of a history with Devil's End, haven't you? Do you want to sort I, of... I don't, I don't know what you're trying to say. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to try and unwind a bit of that history for me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, I'm afraid dates aren't going to help. In oh, don't 90s, worry. People can look them up. Yeah, go and get the book. Yeah. Come on. Buy Dylan's book. I don't, get a, I don't get any royalties. Dylan gets all the money. <laughs> um Back in the 90s, before that, I'd been I'd been trying to do dramas and I was toying with the idea as another drama of doing something um, related to demons, which sort of you understand Benson sort of is like that as well. Yeah. But I, in the end, I, I, I can the idea because I thought it would be too expensive for us to do that. Um, so the, the, a documentary came out of that, which was to take all of the regular cast from the demons back to the village of Aldbourne and basically do a huge walkie-talkie with them over a couple of days and make it into a programme. Um, and that was Return to Devil's End, which I think we made about in about 1994. Um, that was hugely successful. Uh, I, I'm a, I have to say, I think it's a seminal production. I think it probably... It, it probably is almost the best documentary. There are a couple of others I can think of, but um, BBC ones or spin-off ones, documentaries that have been made about the programme. But I think as a as a testament to the John Pertwee years, to what made that group of people so special, that documentary is, is classic. Um, and it hasn't been available on DVD. I'd, I'd held it back from releasing it on DVD specifically because I wanted something, a moment, a special moment for it to go out. Right. Um, in our uh, ongoing Mythmakers series, separate to that, um, we interviewed Damaris Heyman uh, probably about seven or eight years ago, 
you know, sometime around 2010, something like that. Um, Anastasia, my partner and my, my sort of work and, and my wife and my partner in business, and I went up to her home and interviewed her for a Myth Makers. Um, we came away, forgive me for anybody that's already heard all this, we came away, um, frankly, awestruck by her. I mean, at that point, she was in her early 80s, and she was an amazing personality. Uh, um, such a wonderful woman, and, and so mentally on the ball you know like talking to a 20 year old not an 82 year old it was the physical side of her that was holding it back um and uh, we came away and she'd said you know i really want to work i want to do something um and we came away and we thought well what could we do knowing that she couldn't move for a long period of time even then knowing that you know filming is terribly terribly tiring for anyone um, we then sort of fell back on, well, what could we do? And we, we just came up with the idea of doing an Alan Bennett kind of talking head. Um, and we went back to Damaris and asked her, would she be interested? And she, she bless her, she just jumped at it and said, of course, I'd love to do it. Um, and that basically led to thinking about what we could do. And David Howe immediately came to my mind as somebody who knew people who could write um, should we say uh, occult or, or magic stories and yeah, something yeah. he covers in his and tells his books so I thought okay so I went to David asked David and I'd already told them that it, uh, David and Sam Stone his, his wife and partner um, that we wanted to do sort of pieces to camera and we'd like to have maybe six different stories so that she could be sitting in her cottage and tell them stories to camera and i was thinking of it as a very low-key production um you know something would just slip out and no nothing other than her talking to camera about 45 50 minutes long that was the brief i gave them um we went we, we one of the things the reasons why we 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 sort of ran ahead of ourselves with it was that damaris had said I don't want to be pushing up the daisies. I want to do this before anything happens to me. She's a brutally honest woman. Wow, um, yeah. You know, and I admire her so much. Um, so we thought, right, well, we'll get pieces done with Damaris. Then we'll stick them on the shelf and then we'll get back to finishing them later. That's a deadly thing to do. Never do it. And I won't do it again. Um, because once you, once you put something on the shelf, it's very difficult to pull it off if you're working so hard on other things. And we were doing broadcast work in Cyprus, Greek language programming, and we were just so busy, we couldn't get back to it. So we did the pieces with Damage. We hired a cottage near her home. We did all the bits. She was amazing. Never used auto cue in her life before um, and managed to use it and, and deliver the lines amazingly well. I mean, we were riveted just filming it and watching her. Um, so we, we finished that put it on the shelf i didn't even load it into the computer to to check it i mean i did but i just put it in the drive <laughs> you know, put the drive on the shelf shall we say um and then when we were releasing um uh, our older um titles re-releasing them with kosh kosh said last year you know really we need more material have you got anything else that that you can do um and anastasia and i just sort of readdressed this you know and we uh we had already looked at the rushes and realized we didn't have an hour's worth of rushes. We had two and a quarter hours worth of rushes um, in terms of time. And the problem with that was there is no way people, however good Damaris is, would sit for two and a quarter hours just watching talk to camera. You know, that, that just is asking too much of the viewer. So Anastasia came up with the idea of editing it into six episodes, which I thought was brilliant 
brainwave, turning them into episodic story. Um, and also, luckily, we'd shot some material with Damaris in a day, um, about a year after the original date, just because we thought one scene would work better if she was in the village. So it placed her in the village rather than just seeing her in the cottage. You, you know, to believe that she is in the village, you need to see her in the village. So yeah, we went yeah, yeah. And did a day with her there. Um, so we're looking at all of this stuff, and it was just patently obvious again. We had to illustrate what she's talking about. Now we never intended to do that, but. We had to because they, the pieces were too long. So we mounted um, a, a completely new shoot over the summer of last year. Um, and I had to pull so many favours from so many people. I wasn't, I wasn't happy that the production values were as good as I would have liked. But I was happy that we managed to do it. And I felt that we've got away with it. We'll and that's a terrible way to look at it. But I would ne I'm never happy with anything I do. I always feel it can be better. And there's probably a few people out there who agree with me. <laughs> um, and, um, but by the same token, you also have to accept that at this sort of level, you're not expecting to see Michael Bay. Do you know what I mean? No, no. But I, I mean, I have standards and I push yeah, the, yeah. Limits of the standards myself. I mean, again, another Anastasia suggestion. She's, she's the guiding light behind the company um, was to shoot it all, all the cutaway shots from Dam from Olive's point of view. That way we didn't have to show Olive which, of course, would have been extremely expensive because you would have had to cast maybe three actresses or even one actress with terrible, large amounts of prosthetics to see her at different points in her life because these pieces are done through her life from her, her teenage years right to her, near her death. Um, so by definition, we would have had to have tried to see her in all those times, and that would have been just horrendous to do. So seeing things from her point of view got us out of that problem. It also allowed us to shoot it all handheld, and that made things easier as well. And, and um, the, the final product I'm, I'm very pleased with. Um, and interestingly, what, what, we've, what we've never really done with our dramas in the past was think of them in terms of developing the breadth of the characters seen in the programme so we know more about them. One of the nice things about, I think, what we've done with this um, is we now know about Olive's life which we never knew in The Demons, of because course, yeah. it's about the Doctor. What we now know about, with, with, with Damaris' blessing, and with the family of uh, Bob Sloman and Barry Letts, is expand the character and, and know the life of the character. Um, and, you know, although the, the production values aren't perhaps quite as good as they are in Doctor Who, at, you know, even at that time, I do feel that what we are getting is a wonderful narrative and a nice filling out of, of Olive's story. That's, that's made me think about what I want to do in the future. And I think you might be seeing more of this kind of thing where we broaden out the lives of some of the characters that appear briefly in Doctor Who. How good. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people listening to this podcast right now will be happy to hear that. Um, oh, you, you haven't actually said what it's called yet. Well, that was sort of, yes, that's actually the, 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 the denouement of the situation. So we, we made White Witch of Devil's End, and I felt that, I felt that, that, that as a package, um, it was like 
it was like the, the most encompassing thing you could do would be to put Return to Devil's End and White Witch of Devil's End, the drama, together on one DVD box set um, and, and offer it as a package of, you know, if everything you ever wanted to know about the demons. Um, and what came from that was lots of other little special features. We went off and did a little special feature on the uh, Morris dancers, uh, who are in the demons? Um, we 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 used a, a music by uh, a um, a track by an, uh, a singer called Lindsay Gold on the end of uh, White Witch of Devil's End. So we made a video of that for her, and we did an interview with her to go on the box set. So the the entire package is three DVDs. It's got Return to Devil's End and behind the scenes of Return to Devil's End. It's got White Witch of Devil's End, behind the scenes of White Witch of Devil's End, and a bonus DVD of the conventions that have been held at Allbourne. Um, so it's pretty much the entire package. And so we needed a name for the box set, and then we called it The Demons of Devil's End. Wow. And in fact, all of your sets, from what I can gather, and I've got some, but not all of them, all of your sets are always great packages. Well, that's very much what I mean. Kosh are an incredibly professional organisation. Um, they 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 don't suffer fools gladly. So I'm glad they put up with me. <laughs> they 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 come to me and say, you know, we want this, we'd like that, and I can suggest things to them. But they tell me what they think will work. Um, so the packages are intended to give i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening and also generally fans who perhaps haven't bought what we've done in the past because they might consider that it was expensive relatively i mean it isn't because when you look at the numbers that we sell against the cost of doing the product we really do not produce them expensively but yeah. well this you know, actually it's worth me butting in here and making a point because i think a lot these days I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry but i mean people when you look at something else like big finish as well you're paying sometimes as much for a big finish box set as you might pay for the box set of a series of the television program but it's not about it's not about what you're getting it's about what it cost to make what you're getting isn't it it's very much so. I mean, yeah. visual drama is incredibly expensive to produce. Um, and to do it even remotely well is difficult. You know, it, And you're relying on... Um, you're relying on the goodwill of a lot of people. I mean, I pay most, if not all, people who work on our drama productions something, um, as well as covering their costs. But nowhere near broadcast industry standards. Yeah. I can't afford it. It, it. it is simple as that. So people will work on these things for me for goodwill. Um, that's also true of myth makers, but you know, I sh tend to shoot most of them myself. But it's the people, again, like our sound person, Denise, who we're using a lot these days, she, she works for us at a, a rate that she wouldn't do if she was working in broadcast. You know, She knows that we don't have the money and she wants to do them. And I'm grateful to her and everybody else that helps out. Like Ollie Hardacre does a lot of um, a lot of work driving us around and looking after us. You know, you know, it's a, we've got a good crew and we, we always have a laugh while we're filming. Um, I digress a bit from your question. <laughs> no, it's uh, all right. Yeah, but the the, the box sets are are what we're, what I like about them is I think they're making what we've done accessible to a wider audience. I think there are a lot of fans now who think, wow, you know five hours of interviews with the, the leading cast members of an era of Doctor Who. That's something I can't pass up on. Um, yeah, yeah. I think then when they bought one, 
they they've never seen them they they hopefully enjoy them and then they buy more i mean certainly the doctor's uh dvds have done really well far better than i expected and it's kosh that, that said they would well there's a the, one of the great things about those is they're taking stuff that you've already got and they're able to repackage them in a way that's much more expensive for more casual buyers i suppose yeah, I mean, it, it, that's true of the earlier editions, but the, the, the editions that are just about to be released, both um, Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker's uh, Doctors, which come out in June and September, respectively, both of them have new material on them. Um, we've just finished interviewing Angela Bruce, who played Brigadier Bambera, yeah. and Lisa Bauman, who was um, Bernie Summerfield for McCoy's. Uh, DVD, which we had to do because we didn't have enough interviews to keep the six interview uh, set up, shall we say. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and for Colin, um, we haven't actually interviewed her yet, but, but we, we have arranged to interview Bonnie Langford. So, oh, wow, that'll be yeah, great. And Bonnie, bless her cotton socks, Bonnie is so busy working on EastEnders, but she has agreed to do it because she wants it to be in the box there. And, I, and again, that's that's just... You know, points for Bonnie, and I'm, I'm so pleased. And she, you know, she's making time for us, and I'm incredibly grateful to her. She's lovely, and she does, doesn't she? She's a professional. Yeah. There are a lot of people in this business who, who you, you know, you don't are not professionals. I can only put it that way. I've been around, and I do consider myself to be in the business. This is what I do for a living as a producer, and I've yeah. met, I've met, I've met people I thought professionals and found that they're not, and people that. I didn't think were professionals who were. Um, you can't always tell, but I, Bonnie, like John Pertwee, so many others I can mention, and Michael Wisher, were absolute professionals. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the Koch Media releases, then, we should talk about the one we came here to talk about, really. I've which, forgotten, yeah. <laughs> which is the Monsters release, which has oh, just been out. It's just been out about a week by when this podcast will go out you've done four sets with doctors what was the thinking of doing a set with monsters i, I could I, I could be flippant and just say we're trying to rip everybody off um, <laughs> it, it, i think i think the fact that these are such good value i hope everybody who's listening to this don't think that we're trying to exploit them i mean i i don't consider that i i'm doing this to almost make a part work you know i i, yeah, I love yeah. the fact i mean i'm a fan and I've got them on my shelf here. And the idea of having every classic doctor in a box set of interviews with their top assistants, for me, is like I would never have believed I would be uh, privileged to have been the person that did it. If that sounds arrogant, I'm, I apologise. I don't mean it. It doesn't. It doesn't. Okay, well, it doesn't well, I, to me anyway. <laughs> okay. And if it does to anybody else, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I really, really take great pleasure in seeing these coming out myself. Um, and we, we, we would, I, I'm literally in the pub talking to some friends and, uh, which I do quite regularly, the pub and the friends. Um, <laughs> and, and somebody said, well, you know, why don't you do something with some of the people who've played the other parts in the program that you couldn't put in the doctor's, uh, release per se, i.e. John Pertwee as Patrick. Um, and I've always loved, I was a doctor monster. I've been very proud of that. We made that. Um, 
oh, I don't know, about 2000-ish, I could be wrong, um, with yeah, uh, yeah. Sylvester McCoy. And it was Sylvester's idea. He, he wanted to make a, a documentary about the unsung heroes of Doctor Who. It was his motivation that brought us to do it. Um, and that was shot in... Uh, most of it was shot in um, oh, um, Riverside Studios, um, and we used the studios that Doctor Who was shot in. And it was marvellous to actually be there and do all our links for the pieces of interview with all the actors who played the monsters in the studio. It was a magic day, absolutely magic day. Um, uh, I mean, if I could just say as an aside, I'm a fan, and to be in Doctor Who Studios filming the Daleks going down a corridor which is from the first Doctor Who story. What else can you ask for in life? <laughs> Apart from a, a wonderful wife and absolutely fantastic child. Um, of course, I must say that. Anastasia may hear this. And Harry might hear this. <laughs> um, you know, but I know I, I, I'm truly blessed and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I thought, OK, well, maybe we could put I was a Doctor Who monster out. And then I thought, well, let's add value to that. Let's put a group of people, some myth makers with that in the same format as the Doctors, keep it in the Doctors and just call it the Doctors Monsters and see what people think. I mean, if we don't sell enough copies, if Kosh come back and say, that one didn't do very well, so we don't want any more like that, we won't do any more and we'll just stick to finishing all the classic Doctors. Um, but the feedback so far has been incredibly positive again, so much so that I've been having a long conversation on Facebook with a number of, God bless all the fans that talk to me on Facebook. I've seen and this anybody, conversation, yeah. Send, send me a friend request if you're not on Facebook, because I really need the feedback. I really enjoy Facebook for that. I'm not a great lover of Facebook as a concept, but it's so useful to have people tell me what they think. And we've been, I've been having a long conversation, people, about um, doing Doctor Who villains. And, and the feedback is, please do it. So we will do Doctor Who Villains probably early next year. Great. Fantastic. Well, look, Keith, we've probably sort of been through everything and we're probably short of time as well. And that's perhaps enough for the listener for now. But look, can I ask you a favour? Because there's so much we haven't talked about in a few weeks time. Would you like to come back and talk about some more of it? If anybody wants to listen to what I've got to say, I have a big enough ego to talk. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I think there's easily a whole other episode of the podcast in this because there are a ton of things we've not covered and we could go on for at least another hour and a half. But but I think... I don't that's... know what you're trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'm absolutely fascinated to hear it. And my perspective on the podcast is if I'm fascinated to hear it, then other people out there will be too. I, I hope so. Look, there's one person left. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll do it again, hopefully, in a few weeks if we can sort it out. But but for yeah. now, Keith, thanks for coming on, because like I said at the start, I think the stuff that you've done is priceless and, you know, there's no value on it. And well, I'm it's, just... It's... It's my privilege. It's not. I, 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 I really appreciate the compliment, but I consider myself to have been incredibly lucky. And the, and, and the, you know, the honour is mine. It's not the other way around. I'm the one who's been lucky. Well, it takes somebody to have the idea and it takes somebody to have the idea and have the wherewithal to go out and do it. And you are that guy. So thank you for coming and sharing some of that with me tonight. Thanks. Oh, bless you. Thanks very much.